Welcome to Home Dance Film Festival, the podcast that brings a little bit of the Sundance Film Festival to you. We discuss two movies that premiered at Sundance along with one non-Sundance film, plus a few other fun things thrown in along the way. Today we will be discussing Backbeat, Minari, and Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood. My name is Jessica. And I'm Dylan. Before we get into our main discussion, I have to ask... Jessica, do you have anything from this week that you would like to discuss? Well, I sure would. On Easter Sunday, we got turnt and we watched <laughs> Exodus, Gods and Kings. Yes, a modern <laughs> classic. Yeah, it was passable, I suppose. Technically, it looked good and the effects were pretty good. But Christian Bale plays Moses and I couldn't really get past the fact that that's Christian Bale playing Moses. And I couldn't see him as Moses. Plus, there's a lot of white people who look just more tan, and it doesn't sit right with me. <laughs> so Australian Joel Edgerton as the King Ramses or whatever mm. wasn't doing it for you? Yeah, and then randomly Sigourney Weaver. That was strange. I mean, if you want to have a shorter version of the story and not sit through almost four hours of the Ten Commandments, then sure, go for it. But it's not the best movie And we all know the story, okay, not everyone, but a lot of people know the story (laughs) where it's like Moses is, you know, let my people go. And then he asks the Pharaoh, let these people go because they they figure out that he's a Hebrew. And so they exile him and he comes back to save his people. And then they're like, no. And God's like, yo, Moses, this has been 400 years. I'm going to need to do this now. And then (laughs) he's like, God, I'm trying the best I can. So God's like, look out, hold my beer. I'm going to do some plagues. Then we'll see where we're at after that. And then the Pharaoh's like, sure, you guys can go because I'm tired of it and I cannot stand this. And then they're like, dope. They peace out. And then he's like, you know what? Second thought, I'm not I'm not cool with this. I'm going to go after them. Moses parts the Red Seas, all that stuff, comes back and crashes on the Pharaoh and his people and the Egyptians, whatever. They wander in the desert for 40 years. But this movie does not show the wandering. It cuts that all out. So if you don't want to see 40 years of wandering, this is the movie for you. Just shows Moses old. He's heading into that promised land. Ten commandments in tow. <laughs> We're all good. <laughs> Jessica, <laughs> yeah. let me ask you this. Can you sit here and tell me that you have never been a Sunday school teacher? Because that was perfect. <laughs> no, I haven't. I've attended many Sunday schools, though. <laughs> classes. My bad, because they're not actual schools, just classes. Sure. <laughs> and I noticed whenever you said most people know these stories, were you, were you looking at me? Because I'm the person yeah. throughout most Bible movies where I'm like... Is this the one where (laughs) this thing happened or is it this other story? Because I'm a hellbound heathen and I can never keep things straight. Yeah, because you you didn't know some of the stuff while we were watching this. Yeah. I remember last year on Easter, whenever we were watching The Last Temptation of Christ, Mm -hmm. and you were telling me the difference between Mary the (laughs) prostitute and Mary Magdalene. Yeah. Yeah, well... See, Mary Magdalene was supposed to be the prostitute, but she likely was not a prostitute. That's just patriarchy, misogynism coming in, whatever. It's Mary, Jesus's mother, and Mary Magdalene. Mary, Mary the Magdalene. She's yeah, she was uh, kind of a disciple, but you can't call her that because she was a woman, so she can't be a disciple technically. But she was his friend. That's what you can call her. Okay, there are too many Marys in the Bible for this brain to handle. There's only two major ones. That's too many for this brain to handle. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. Too, too many. (laughs) 
whenever you told me they were two different people, I was like, what are you talking about? But she's not a prostitute. Okay. In that movie, The Last Temptation, she was. Yeah. Because... But then in Mary Magdalene that we watched oh, right, with right. Rooney right. Mara, she was not a prostitute. I don't think so, no. All right. That's more true, I guess. All right. One of these days, I will get all of this straight. <laughs> yeah. There's just Jesus's mom, the Virgin Mary, and then Mary Magdalene, which I think it's like Mary of Magdalene or Mary the Magdalene, something like that, because it, it has to do with where she's from. The Magdalene, something like that. I will keep referring to you during our Bible epics and being just, you're a wealth of information. I appreciate that. Did you like the movie? Yeah, the movie was pretty good. It's a Ridley Scott epic, (laughs) and he does pretty well with it. He makes it fairly entertaining, at least. My favorite part was, of course, the plagues Mm -hmm. and just seeing all hell rain down on people and people just suffering all the egyptians suffering and get a little bit of a thrill out of that because they were assholes and yeah christian bale is always fun he always commits at least so yeah i enjoyed seeing it i i want to see the 10 commandments more but i i I know we didn't have four hours Mm -hmm. this year to watch it yeah it's entertaining enough to watch but it's not high quality movie or anything Yeah, but yeah, it was fine. It was better than I thought it was going to be, but it wasn't one I'd been clamoring for forever, but I'm glad we finally saw it at least. Dylan, is there anything that you would like to discuss? Yes, there are two things I would like to discuss really quickly. We've been catching up on the Independent Spirit Award nominees, uh, which led us to finally watching the movie Straight Up on Netflix, which is about an OCD gay man who begins to wonder if he's perhaps not gay because he's never had gay sex, mostly because of his OCD, and which leads him to a relationship with a girl who has some baggage of her own. And as IMDb describes it, it's a love story without the thrill of copulation. (laughs) That's good. Yeah. And I found this one really fun. It seems like it could possibly go off the rails and be maybe borderline offensive, but it was made by the star who is also a gay man, James Sweeney, who also wrote the story. Mm -hmm. And it's not just a, oh, maybe this guy who is seemingly blatantly gay is not gay. It's more so dealing with his mental issues and trying to come to terms with his own feelings and his friendship with this girl played by Katie Finlay, who I know back in the day from The Killing, and I know we also both saw her on The Carrie Diaries. Yeah. But I really like their dynamic just because it wasn't romantic in the traditional sense, but they really cared for one another and they both helped one another. And the way it plays out is not completely movie magic. It's fairly realistic and it's sometimes frustrating, but it's also really funny and touching. And I don't know, I just really enjoyed the script. It was very funny. Uh, what I mean, what did you think of it? I enjoyed it. I think if you like Gilmore Girls, you will enjoy this because the dialogue is very fast, smart, talking, mm-hmm. like mile a minute. Blah, 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 blah. So if you like that, you'll probably enjoy this. Um, I don't think that I thought it was laugh out loud funny, like as hilarious as maybe you found it, but it's amusing and I think it's entertaining and it's a nice story. Yeah, I just really like their dynamic 
And the heart of the movie is their friendship. And just watching that unfold for like an hour and a half was enough for me to really enjoy it. And just his journey that there was some real emotional stakes behind it. It just really worked for me. It was a nice surprise. Well, some people might not like the ending because it can be considered ambiguous, I guess. Some people might interpret it different ways or they might not understand it. But there's one thing that kind of bothered me about it, but I don't know if if I said it, if it would be like a spoiler anyway. So I I don't know if I should say. I guess we should just avoid it and can talk off air about it but I get what you're saying but I think if you take it at face value that it resolves nicely I guess like realistically with what he set up I guess it does yeah I think it's just him trying to come to terms with his OCD and still have a place for her in his life because he really cares for her Mm-hmm. And just there's a lot going on in his head that he has to deal with. And there's a lot going on with her that she has to deal with and trying to get past some of her past trauma. There's a lot of trauma in this movie. and yeah, But I think it tackles it delicately and nicely. The other movie I want to talk about, my uh, esoteric pick of the week... <laughs> is the Broadway Melody of 1940, which is the fourth and final entry in the Broadway Melody series that began with the Best Picture winning 1929 entry. And the fourth one is the first to star the great Fred Astaire after delivering a string of hits at RKO. Rather than his famous co-star Ginger Rogers, Astaire's stars alongside the so-called Queen of Tap, Eleanor Powell. And while the story is not exactly the most important aspect of the film, it involves two down-on-their-luck dance partners played by Astaire and future senator George Murphy. And through a series of circumstances and mistaken identity, Murphy's character gets the chance to star in a Broadway show with the established star played by Eleanor Powell, even though Astaire is the most talented partner between the two, and he was the one who was meant to be hired. And it's a really, just an enjoyable tale. I've been getting much more into musicals lately, (laughs) just because I've been reviewing a lot of Warner Archive titles that have been coming out, and they've been really churning them out. And they've been speaking to me more than they ever have, I guess because I've been watching some fairly good ones. I believe the only Fred Astaire movie I'd seen up until this point was Holiday Inn, most likely, Mm. which I wasn't the biggest fan of. Me either. After watching this, you know what? Hmm. The guy's pretty talented. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. He knows how to move. I can see that. And I really liked his dynamic with Eleanor Powell because she's she's incredibly like lovely and just has this infectious smile like (laughs) while she's doing her tap dancing. And she she's said to be the only person that Astaire was nervous about working with because she was the only person that he felt might even exceed his talents. And I just read all these stories about them like practicing for hours and hours until like they were wearing out their piano person and they just keep going like, nope, we got to get this perfect. There's this number that I had heard before I watched the movie called uh, Begin the Begin. It's a famous song and I had heard that it was one of the more famous musical numbers in film history and I was like okay let's see what this is and then I watched it and I was like yeah that that's the stuff it was just so mesmerizing just to see them just dancing in unison and floating across this immaculate stage and the production that design's amazing their movements like they're dancing on air and stuff like yeah well you know Madonna <laughs> said it best Ginger Rogers danced on air. (laughs) But this time, it's Eleanor Powell. They had style. They had grace. Rita Hayworth gave good face. (laughs) Madonna knows what's up. Yes, she does. 
<laughs> this movie, uh, it's just a lot of fun. And I would recommend it to anyone who has even a passing interest in like old school, glamorous Hollywood musicals. And the new Warner Archive Blu-ray is choice. It's <laughs> immaculate as pretty much all of their presentations are. I love them. They're one of my favorites. <laughs> the movie, it's just, it's really funny. It's really just moving. I like it. That sounds nice. Yeah, so I look forward to watching it again, and hopefully this time I can get you in on, on the action, see what you think. Maybe so. I haven't, like you said, I've only seen one Fred Astaire movie, so I haven't seen him dance a lot. Yeah. If nothing else, I'll show you that sequence, the mm-hmm. begin the begin sequence, and you can let me know what you think. I've probably heard it. Enough of that. I want to know, speaking of dancing, Jessica, shall we Sundance? We shall. <laughs> I have ever met. I'm not angry, sister. I'm desperate. I think you're jealous. Jealous? Oh, yeah. Jealous. Jealous of you. Jealous of Stu. Jealous of me. One became a legend. The other fell in love. Zeus is just a girl. You don't know her. She'll get rid of you. She'll finish with you as she did to Klaus. She's going to do it to you. From the producers of The Crying Game comes Batbeat. The remarkable story of the friendship behind the most popular band in history. There goes Stuart Sutcliffe. He could have been in the Beatles. I love him, John. Don't we all? Our first movie is Backbeat, which premiered at Sundance in 1994. It was written by Ian Softley, Michael Thomas, and Stephen Ward. It was directed by Ian Softley. Okay, this is a long list of people... Starring, because I was getting all the characters, so hold on to your butts. <laughs> Starring Stephen Dorff, who plays Stuart Sutcliffe, Ian Hart, who plays John Lennon, Gary Bakewell, who plays Paul McCartney, Chris O'Neill, who plays George Harrison, Scott Williams, who plays Pete Best, and Cheryl Lee, who plays Astrid Kircher. Backbeat is a dramatization of the Hamburg, Germany phase of the Beatles' early history. So if you know anything about the Beatles, or if you don't, there was a period of time whenever they were first starting out, which they're still known as the Quarrymen, and they went through all kinds of phases of names before they even got to the Beatles. They played in Hamburg, Germany, in seedy dive bars that were mainly strip clubs, and John and Stu were, I think, actually Pete also, were the only ones who were of age because they were 18, and I guess since the drinking age is 18, they can get into those clubs, but George and Paul were underage, that they had to lie so that they could work there, and they wouldn't get deported, so it's this whole period of their lives where they're playing in these clubs, and and, you know, building up their skills and all kinds of stuff, stamina. So you're probably going to find out anyways with this podcast that I am a huge Beatles fan. One might call me a Beatlemaniac. (laughs) So I love everything the Beatles. So of course I was looking forward to watching this, even though I didn't realize that it was straight up their lives. I was, I just thought it was kind of a band similar to them. I enjoyed the movie, but I didn't love it. And I think it's because the Beatles themselves, they have such strong personalities and there's so much footage and photos and accounts and all kinds of stuff. The, the Beatles lore is 
a whole thing unto itself. And they also have a specific type of humor that they developed from other influences just by things that they liked. Everything is so specific that it's difficult for other people to imitate them, I guess. So it's just kind of strange. It's not like with Walk the Line whenever Joaquin captured Johnny Cash so well. I could really see Johnny Cash with Joaquin, but with these actors, I couldn't really see the Beatles very well. I know there wasn't Ringo because Ringo wasn't around yet but he, he met them there but it's just the Beatles didn't really shine through for me the guy who played Paul he looked very similar to Paul McCartney which was kind of uh, unnerving at first because it's like whoa that looks like a young Paul so as I was kind of caught off guard funny enough he also plays Paul McCartney in a Lifetime movie with Elizabeth Mitchell it's about him and Linda which is weird and I will end up watching it and it will be terrible but I will watch it <laughs> I would want to watch that just for Elizabeth Mitchell. Yeah, that's mainly, I mean, that's half the reason why I want to watch it. And it's on YouTube, and that's pretty much the only place I think you can watch it. Back to this movie. They were trying to focus more on John and Stuart's relationship, which I get, it's kind of a, a big thing at the beginning. And Stuart played bass not very well. He often turned his back to the crowd so that they couldn't see him playing because he would just mess up songs. And Paul notoriously got angry at him a lot and was just like, why is this dude still in this band? But he and John were good friends and they met in art school and Stuart was more interested in art. And then whenever they were in Germany, they met Astrid and Klaus Vlorman and Stuart fell in love with Astrid. So that's a whole thing. And all the Beatles were kind of in love with her because she was so cool and she's like this kind of hipster before there were hipsters and she's the one who showed them the mop top haircut and everything and it's just this whole thing. Whenever they're focusing more on John, the other members are kind of more background which I, mean, I can understand if they're trying to tell more the story of Stuart and John. I, I think they could have done it better maybe gotten more of their personalities in there because George was just barely there and Paul was barely there too and with with the bars that they're playing like the strip clubs they didn't really show how rough it was they didn't have people throwing stuff at them because they had all kinds of stuff thrown at them all the time whenever they played those strip clubs and they had to play for hours and hours on end so they had to come up with super super long set lists so that they can keep playing and keep the people kind of pacified so that they wouldn't break out into mass brawls or throw bottles at them so they played a lot of covers and the movie there's no original Beatles music played. They only played covers, but their covers of the songs are the most famous versions, so it's kind of like listening to real Beatles music whenever you watch the movie. There was one song that John sang, and it's called Long Tall Sally, and it's a Little Richard cover, and John didn't sing that, Paul did, but I don't think anyone would really notice that or care except for people like me. It's entertaining, and Beatles fans, from what I've read, they seem to like it more than I do. I, it's one of the better ones, I guess. I'm not closed off to movies about the Beatles or any more that they want to make or anything like that, biopics, but I just think this one wasn't super strong, but it's entertaining enough, and if you want to learn more about them, I guess it's a good way to. I'm not gonna go into the story about Stuart or anything like that, just in case no one knows about it, and they they don't want to know any spoilers or anything. I think a lot of people would not know about it, because <laughs> you had told me about it before, and even still, at the end, I was surprised. I was like, oh, this is this person. Okay, I got you. Okay, so I won't go into it. I 
enjoyed it pretty well as someone who lives with a with a huge Beatles fan such as yourself. <laughs> I've heard bits and pieces of the stories on our various walks throughout the years. So it was it was interesting to watch these people trying to inhabit these iconic figures. And mainly I came away with, is that Professor Quirrell as John Lennon? And it was. <laughs> So that was that was fun. But the other known Beatles, so like George and Paul, they were basically non-entities throughout mm-hmm. and were given nothing to do. Besides, I felt like the movie kind of took like a villain edit for Paul and kind of framed him more in a... Things usually do. Negative light. <laughs> yeah, I'll go ahead and say my favorite Beatle is Paul because he's the best Beatle, you know. <laughs> and I love him. That does not mean that I hate John. I also love John. He is my second favorite. <laughs> I love all of the four lads from Liverpool. <laughs> and Ringo's just trying to get some more songs on the album. <laughs> George especially was a non-entity. Mm-hmm. But every time they would go to anything outside of John and Stuart and I guess Astrid, it just, there was basically none of that. They were there and you're like, Paul, Paul deserves a little bit. I mean, both Paul and George deserve more than that. But mm-hmm. especially Paul, he had such, you could even play up his villainy more, not villainy, but like his objections to Stuart being in the band, like show more of the blow-ups and conflict and everything because mostly it was just Stuart fucking around Germany is that where yeah and Paul getting annoyed yeah and not showing up to stuff and not really caring about the band because he he wasn't in it for the long haul he was just wanting to just have some fun meet some girls play some music and just live his life do his art mm-hmm. like he wasn't he was an actual like paint artist yeah uh, and and John was too yeah but John isn't primarily known for his <laughs> People aren't saying, oh, John the artist, like John the painter, he does music as well? Mm -hmm. No. Everyone knows that he's primarily known as for being in the Beatles. While Stuart, whenever he was around, he mainly wanted to be a painter. Yeah. That's what he was passionate about. And he was good at it, too. He's had painting sold and everything. And yeah. Astrid, I think, probably kept some. And she just passed away last year. Yeah, I enjoyed seeing the the friendship between John and Stuart and the his seeming kind of jealous over his relationship with Astrid. But then there was also a love triangle between Astrid and that other guy you mentioned. Klaus. Yeah, yeah but it was kind of not because they're sort of like childhood chummy people yeah but klaus was still butthurt whenever he saw I guess. stewart with i mean he was to a- be... actively mad at one point that i think it that was... they had slept together yeah but i think it was just because he thought that he he was losing like the closeness with her or something i don't think it was so much as wanting to be romantically involved to be fair all of the beatles all of the boys the quarrymen at that time including pete best too were kind of in love with astrid they all old uh, Cheryl Lee from Twin Peaks. I thought she did a good job. One thing that did bother me in the course of watching this is how extremely male gazy the sex scenes were and how yeah. it was like very soft lighting like during the like main sex scene. It was like 90s yeah. like infomercial like call for this video like we're waiting for you. Yeah, I it remember I remember being irritated at that scene because I was like this is completely pointless and I why are they doing this? It was overextended. It looked like almost like a softcore porn kind yeah. of. And I was just like, this is stupid because I don't care. All you have to do is show that they, you can just do a little PG-13 cut. I get the yeah. picture. I don't need to see an extended her like, 
thrashing around like a damn dolphin or something. I get the point. It's what the people want. Yeah. I thought you meant like where the boys were all getting on the same room with different girls. Oh, no. Because that's mean, just like a band thing that they did. No, I'm just talking about the main sex scene with Astrid and Stuart. Whenever it's like slow and they're like panning over their bodies. Yeah. And it's just like, oh my yeah. goodness. Yeah, that one was really stupid. But the one before where they're all just kind of having sex with different girls. Yeah. I was just like, ugh, typical. It was gross, but it's just like, oh, hey, dudes, you having a good time? Yeah, bro, high five. Yeah. <laughs> We're banging. In the court, like, their bunk beds, like, <laughs> high-fiving yeah. each other's from the bottom bunk. Like, bro. <laughs> so that's annoying, but whatever, typical. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed more s- stuff with the the Beatles properly, the Corman, with the, uh, like, seeing them get into stimulants and yeah. to play all night and... Like, hey guys, you need yeah. to need they, some energy? They got on those hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> that was the truth. <laughs> I know you said that they didn't really portray the bars like to be as dangerous or seedy as they were, but I felt it was enough to get the point that these weren't places you exactly wanted to be. Watching their burgeoning fame and seeing everyone be like, oh, these pe- these lads are actually pretty interesting and stuff. Yeah, well, they do flash. I mean, they go a little bit into the future where they make, make it back to the Cavern Club as well, so that's... That's Liverpool, mm-hmm. London area, so kind of hometown hero phase. There was one one thing that kind of bothered me about the movie. There's a scene that is really emotional, and in real life, it was kind of a big deal. It was a big deal in general, but there's a part that was actually captured on film by Astrid, like pictures, and they kind of redid it in the movie, and they made it where it was just John, but it was really just brief and kind of flippant, and it took a lot of the emotion out of the movie, I think. Thing. So I don't think that they handled that that part very well, that part of history very well. Was it a scene near the end where he was being delivered some information? Yeah, and he's back in a building. I think I know what you're talking about. He and I think George were there together, and it was a really, really sad moment. And so she took pictures of them, and it was really heartbreaking to look at the pictures and then just hear her talk about it and hear George, future George, talk about it. It's really painful, but they just dismissed it. They didn't do anything with it. So I was kind of like, okay. Yeah, they seem to gloss over some of the more interesting or pivotal points that you probably could have explored a little bit more in favor of just kind of messing around. and. Yeah, and I think the guy who played John was kind of trying too hard for me. It was a little much for me. John, I mean, John was a little, you know, he was an asshole. He's always been an asshole, but whenever he was younger, especially, he was a jerk and a bully a lot. And he's all tough guy and they're all teddy boys and stuff, but it, it wasn't that weird I guess he just he seemed trying too hard I think I don't know it definitely portrayed John as having a very fragile ego which he did yeah (laughs) (laughs) I just don't like the way that the actor did it it seemed awkward how do you like them So, Jessica, did you come up with a rating system for this one? Yes, I did. I was thinking either mop tops or you knows. (laughs) You knows? Yeah. (laughs) So, some Paul McCartney's you knows. Okay. So, what rating would you give this? Um, I guess I would give this 
three mop tops or, you knows, out of five. Well, I don't think I can do it as well as you, so I'll just say two and a half mop tops. It was fine. I enjoyed it pretty well, but it's nothing super special. Agreed. Those who want to see if they have a different opinion, this movie is extremely hard to find online, and the only reason we were able to view it is because I randomly picked this up in a uh, Shout Factory Blu-ray sale a while ago. So keep an eye out for that Shout Factory Blu-ray if you want to check this out or good luck finding it some other way. (laughs) What a wonderful day to be in the house of the Lord. If you're here with us for the first time, please stand. What a beautiful family. Glad you're here. How's your daddy like that new farm? He growing things good, doing things right? Yes. I don't like grandma. Grandma smells like Korea. Yeah. What about grandma smell? Minari premiered at the 2020 Sundance Film Festival, where it won both the U.S. Dramatic Grand Jury Prize and the U.S. Dramatic Audience Award. It's directed by Lee Isaac Chung, and it stars Steven Yoon, Han Yi Ri, Alan Kim, Noelle Kate Cho, Yoon Yoon Jung, and Will Patton. Minari is the semi-autobiographical story of the Korean Yi family as they moved from California to rural Arkansas in the early 1980s. The optimistic father, Jacob, has big dreams of growing Korean produce and making a better life for his family, while the skeptical wife Monica tries to acclimate to her dramatic surroundings while taking care of her two children, Anne and David, the latter of which suffers from a heart condition that prevents extreme physical exertion. To help watch the children and ease the shock of her new surroundings, Monica's playful mother, Soon Ja, moves from South Korea to live with them. The film tells a story of one family's hopeful journey towards achieving the American dream. I found Minari to be a very enjoyable and gentle story. (laughs) It's very relaxing and I love the way that it tells a story that from the outside people might think that it's not incredibly relatable if they just see that it's an Asian family and they're like, well, I'm not Asian. I might not understand these experiences. But it's an American story, even though it's about Asian people. And like the way that controversy was brought up whenever the Golden Globes put this into foreign language or international film, Mm -hmm. even though it's an American story, I understand why there was that controversy because this is what America is about. It's going to a place and trying to to make a better life for yourself, even if they're not speaking English mm-hmm. the whole time. It is an American story. Yeah, they're still Americans. Yes. <laughs> so I appreciated that the story was a memory piece based slightly on or partially on the memories of Lee Isaac Chung from his own childhood. Mm-hmm. And this was very specifically focused around David and how what we saw on screen was mostly what a child might kind of remember because it was very distilled into very clear boxes, like his family members, such as his dad. There's a very clear look that Stephen Yoon's character had that Lee Isaac Chung probably remembered something similar with his dad from childhood. And just very specific moments. You didn't get a lot of moments with, like, say, his parents having their own conversations. There were some of them that he probably extrapolated and 
yeah. picked up from being a parent himself these days. But it was very much from that childlike sensibility. And that caused, especially with his parents, there was tension throughout their marriage from this move. But the movie didn't focus on argue, arguing the entire time throughout the movie. It was realistic without being too dark or depressing. It was just natural. And I, I really appreciated that about the film. I also really liked it. I thought that it was very compelling. I was really drawn into the story and I wanted to know what was going to happen with this family and all of the characters. And also, it's supposed to be in Arkansas, so that's where they're living now. And even though Arkansas is just kind of plain and boring, it looked very pretty. The, the cinematography and everything visually, it was really nice. And I found it, like you said, to be pretty relaxing. And it's a nice story. And I really liked the kids in the movie, because sometimes that can be either, you know, not so great or kind of so-so with kids, actors and everything. But I thought that they were really good. And my favorite character was the grandmother. I thought she was awesome. <laughs> and I really loved her. I thought she was different than I was expecting her to be because I was expecting her to be like an uptight grandma who didn't want them to be doing whatever. She's not a regular grandma. She's a cool grandma. <laughs> she's a cool grandma. <laughs> she's, a, she's a little hellraiser. Yeah, she came in. She's like, what's the 411? <laughs> so I really liked her and I loved her relationship with the kids and with David especially and they're kind of back and forth kind of like bullying each other but not it was it was really funny and I love the Mountain Dew joke yeah. that was that was probably the funniest part of the movie the water from the mountain yeah <laughs> go get some more water from the mountain <laughs> So yeah, I, I thought it was it was really good. And going with some of the criticisms, I guess, that I saw whenever I was just reading to see, you know, what other people thought and lower rating things. And people think that it's super long and it's way boring and nothing happens and it lacks plot. But I think it's kind of, you know, like Nomadland. It's more of a character-driven movie because it's just about family drama, human drama. So it's just what's going to happen with this family. It's mostly family dynamics. It's centered inside so sure they kind of they don't see a lot of people except whenever they go to church and then business dealings and their weird religious neighbor which I really liked him too because he was endearing in a way because he was almost childlike and then he kind of attached onto them because he was in the Korean War and he's like oh wow you're Korean and all this stuff yeah Will Patton was really yeah. great in that role <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's the best role I've probably seen him in yeah I recently rewatched Remember the Titans so so I also really like him in that. Yeah. But there wasn't as much racism as I thought there might be in the movie, but it's just because they didn't really go out. It didn't show them interacting with that much of the community. I mean, there were comments in the church, like stupid, insensitive comments that the white kids made and everything, of course. Yeah, one thing that I read about that, or one point I read, was since this was more so from the point of view of the children, maybe they white what was included with those kids were probably things that Lee Isaac Chung, similar things that he experienced as a child that did make an impact, but he wasn't as exposed to maybe some of the racism that his parents yeah. was facing. So it was more just condensed to those few little scenes and they were effective. And yeah. <laughs> I mean, the kids, they didn't mean it maliciously. They were just ignorant yeah. because <laughs> they didn't know Asian people. And just, it just sounds stupid. Just like, why is your face so flat? Yeah. Yeah, like, like, oh, oh. My God. <laughs> 
Yeah, insensitive remarks. Just the little girl doing Stop stuff me like- whenever I say something in your language. <laughs> yeah, it's just so awkward because looking back on that, I, I hate that I did that. And But it's such a thing with children. They hear something and they want to mimic it, but they don't know how. So they just end up being super problematic and racist. <laughs> I think they handled that really delicately and realistically in the movie. They didn't approach this whole movie of, no, they never experienced any racism of any kind. But that wasn't the main part of the movie. It was their struggles to flourish economically and acclimate to their new surroundings. It surprised me that whenever David went to stay over at a friend's house that his dad seemed so chill and everything. Like, I expected racism at that point, but there wasn't any. And so I was like, what? It was really strange. I guess it's too busy doing other things to even think of that there's something amiss. I mean, good for him that not thinking <laughs> that. Yeah. Oh, there's a Korean boy in here. Yeah, nothing's wrong. Let's be real. He wouldn't know that he was Korean. He would just say that he was Chinese. Yeah. <laughs> That's the modus operandi for... Yeah. For Americans in general. <laughs> yeah. Just like any Hispanic person is Mexican, yes. any Asian person is Chinese. Yeah. Some of the complaints were that there was no assimilation scenes really, but I mean, that just goes to them just probably already being assimilated because they lived in California before. So that probably already happened. Yeah. And then it's just not them out and about in town. It's just their family story and his dad trying to start this farm. So I, I get it. I get why there wasn't. And it didn't make me angry that there wasn't a scene of assimilation or anything in the movie. Yeah. One of the things that I found most interesting in this movie, the character of Monica, in like in terms of assimilation, the Hany Ri performance, she seemed, especially when her mother was about to come over, seemed very intent on maintaining her, the Korean side of her heritage. It's like Mm -hmm. she needed to prove to her mother like, oh no, I'm not American. I'm Korean just because I've been here. So while others, especially David, both of the children, they grew up speaking both languages, so mm-hmm. they could speak fairly fluently both ways. I don't remember ever hearing Monica really speak English besides whenever she was speaking to the ladies at the church and just trying to say enough to get by, but mostly she just... Yeah, she would sometimes say things in English to David. She would say things in English to the kids, and then they would say things in English to her as well whenever they didn't want their grandmother to know what they were saying. Oh, yeah. So she would say things sometimes to them. That's right. (laughs) But still, it was interesting how she was trying to seemingly prove to herself and her mother that they are Korean. We're not abandoning our... Yeah. Korean heritage. That's why I thought their grandmother was going to be uptight and kind of overbearing about that. Yeah, she was more open to being like, hey, let's get into this American stuff. Like, yeah. I like wrestling. I yeah. like Mountain Dew. <laughs> yeah, that's why it was surprising, but I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I think her performance was really great. I, I understand the nomination. Oh, yeah. I think it was a lot of fun how she was very much up for playing with David and <laughs> even whenever he... He was such a dick to her, but... (laughs) he's a little child so it was just his way she wasn't acting like a a grandma should act in his eyes so he was an american grandma yeah be like be like a normal grandma make me cookies yeah and she's like nah that's not my bag yeah here's some stuff that i brought from korea that will help your heart not explode so yeah organs and stuff organ meat yeah and he's like damn he's like all right but just be cool why are you being so carefree it's making me uncomfortable i need you to be the typical grandma and then he just starts pulling pranks on her ass <laughs> yeah but she rolls with the punches and she's like no i do not want this little gift from god punished <laughs> yeah because it's hilarious even though i'm 
mad, but that, that was pretty funny. Yeah, I really like this moment, the really heartfelt moment that they had between one another whenever he, I forgot what he did, but she called him a strong boy, mm-hmm. and then he was kind of taken aback, and he seemed kind of sad, and then she asked, oh, no one's never ever called you that? And then she's like, strong boy, strong boy, very strong boy, yeah. because he can't run or he can't do anything, and his parents tell him that he can't do anything because they're basically like, you're going to drop dead because of the hole in your heart. Mm-hmm. So he, he's been told that he's weak this whole time, and he he never felt that before. So I thought that was very sweet. Yeah, there were several multiple scenes between the two that really made me feel a lot. I really enjoyed one of the moments whenever they were in the, I believe they were in the creek when they were planting the Minari, the titular mm-hmm. Minari, and David was afraid of like a possible snake that they had seen, yeah. and she was like, no, it's out in the open. You don't need to be. You have your eye on that. You know that it's the things that are hidden that are more scary, and I thought that was just yeah. a really nice moment. of. And he was like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah that got me, because that's, that's wisdom. Yeah. Because that's very true. The hidden things are the dangerous things. Mm-hmm. She was like, don't throw rocks at it. Don't scare it away. You need to keep your eye on it. Yeah. It's like your main, your first thought would be, I need to get this away as soon as possible. Like, no, just let it be. Let mm-hmm. it be. You know where it is. It's fine. Yeah. But ain't that the truth, though? Silent killers. Mm. Granny knows. Yeah. Gr- Granny's the best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and one last thing that I, I wanted to point out is the performance from Stephen Yun, who I've pretty much enjoyed everything <laughs> that he's ever done. Of course, like The Walking Dead. But even his performance in Burning, I think this is a nice growth from that. And he deserves the nomination that he got this year. It's a very nuanced performance and very heartbreaking yeah. in a lot of respects because he's at once both very confident in his plans to move his family to this quote-unquote godforsaken and his wife's mind place like in a mobile home where it has wheels yeah. and she's like this isn't what you promised me yeah. but he, he's optimistic because he's like we're gonna have land this is gonna be dope our family's gonna we're gonna be better off and at the same time you know that he's frightened of failure because it could so easily go to hell because the previous occupant of that house like their farm died and yeah it's cursed yeah so just seeing all of that registered on his face it's such a very subtle before performance this movie is subtle incarnate and basically which as you were saying is why people think it's slow and stuff but it's mm-hmm. very intoxicating and relaxing and I don't think it's overly long at all no it's a series of character moments which is what you want from a film yeah the the moments are very compelling too mm-hmm. and I do think that the ending is it kind of seems like it's quickly kind of wrapped up a little bit mm-hmm. like it may be thrown together but it's not the worst or anything and some people may not kind of get certain things but it makes sense and there's a lot of symbolism like there's a there's a whole thing throughout the movie about them looking for water and mm-hmm. then finding water and then Minari is a water plant so there's a, there's a lot of symbolism and things and if you pick up on it I think it'll make more sense to people. Yeah this seems like a movie that would definitely reward rewatches so yeah. I we both only watched it once so far and I, I look forward to watching it again. Yeah. Let me ask you knowing going into this that it was a Best Picture nominee, that it won the Audience Award, that it won all these awards at Sundance. Did it live up to your expectations or did all of the hype get to be too much for you? I think the hype was a little bit too much for me. 
mm-hmm. but it is very good. I thoroughly enjoyed it, but I thought it was going to be better. <laughs> I'm pretty much right there with you. I think Hyde gets the best of way too many <laughs> films, in my opinion, but I did really quite enjoy it. I think if this hadn't been one of the movies that we skipped at Sundance, because <laughs> we are like, oh, it's A24, that'll definitely come around here. <laughs> if we had seen it at Sundance, we probably would have been more floored by it and surprised by it than yeah. a year of hype up until now. But yeah. I still think it was very good. Yeah. The hype didn't ruin Promising Young Woman, though. So that's good. True. <laughs> oh, good for you. And how was it? So, pray tell, what is your rating system? Okay, I thought about this. I think we should go with Cans of Mountain Dew. That's a good system. (laughs) (laughs) So, I would personally give this movie four Cans of Mountain Dew out of five. You know what? What's that, Jessica? Tell me. Lay it down. You snatched those cans right from my hand because I would give it four Cans of Mountain Dew out of five. (laughs) Good thing we snatched that eight pack because we got four (laughs) cans each. Yeah. We're ready to do the do, baby. For those who (laughs) want to do the do, who want to see what they think of this movie, it is currently available digitally and in select theaters, and the Blu-ray will be coming out May 18th for those who are listening in the future or just want to mark it on your calendars. Oh my god, that's her. Do not pick up the phone. Please don't pick up the phone. Don't answer it. Don't. Why risk it? Connor, Connor, don't pick up the phone. Don't. Hello. Hello, Connor. Oh, hello, Bibi. How are you? Well, just lovely. Thank you for asking. Is she there? Our last film is Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood, which was released in 2002. It is based on the novel by Rebecca Wells. It was adapted for the screen by Mark Andrus, and the screenplay was by Callie Corey, and it was directed by Callie Corey. Sorry if I mispronounced that name. (laughs) It stars Sandra Bullock, Ellen Burstyn, Fionnula Flanagan, apologies, Maggie Smith, Shirley Knight, and Ashley Judd. After years of mother-daughter tension, Sita Lee, played by Sandra Bullock, receives a scrapbook detailing the wild adventures of the Yayas, her mother's girlhood friends, when she is kidnapped by them and taken to a secluded cabin. The friends go through the scrapbook with Italy, telling her different memories of her mother's life that she never knew and filled in some of the gaps of her life with new perspectives shown through flashbacks of her childhood memories. This makes Sidalee view her mother differently, especially when she is on the precipice of big life and relationship changes herself. So I'm gonna get this right right out of the way first up. Um, whenever I think of this movie, I always, always think of the Calendar Girls, Calendar Girls, mm-hmm. that movie, because Calendar Girls came out the year after this one, so they're kind of tied together in my mind. So this movie kind of has like a Steel Magnolias charm to it, but also kind of calendar girls e with the older women gathered around so that's what i think of whenever i think of this movie and i had never seen the whole thing i don't think i think i'd only seen pieces from what i remember and i remember the the trailer and clips on tv where sandra has the phone and she starts banging it on the counter she's like no no because they both do that and that makes me laugh still i thought this movie was fine i didn't think it was the best thing ever it was during like 
premium Sandy times whenever we got some some darkly comedic roles and also some just straight comedic roles, all comedy, you know, Miss Congeniality, like premium Bullock era. But this one didn't really use her the best way that it could. It, it wasn't as effective. But I think if the book was written that way, there's not much that you can do unless you just want to rewrite it. But I just think that she was kind of wasted in this movie, so it didn't really get to show much of her talents, except at the beginning whenever she's doing all the funny stuff that it's like, oh, she she's just like her mother. She has her same mannerisms and quirks, but mostly the movie is focused on her mother's past and her friends, so I get it. It's right in the title. Yeah. It's about the Yaya sisterhood. Yeah. Yaya! So, I enjoy a story about women ding each other up and helping each other and forming clubs and everything, but as far as sisterhoods go, I'm gonna stick with the traveling pants myself, <laughs> because that's my favorite sisterhood, I All would right. say. Ageist. <laughs> hey, no, I liked the Calendar Girls. That's pretty dope, and I love Steel Magnolias, so... Yeah. But they're not all old in that movie. Anyways, that's probably a bad example. But <laughs> mm. this one, it's heartbreaking a lot of times, and mostly the funny moments are with the older women, so I, I enjoyed seeing them in it. I think they mostly carry the movie, the older women do, and the flashbacks can be kind of, I don't know, boring to me at times. They kind of take me out of it. I would just much rather just see the older women talk about things. But your dear Ashley Judd's in it. I know. Oh, and I do like Ashley Judd. Ashley Judd definitely carries the flashbacks. Oh, yeah. But I just, I don't know. I, it doesn't flow right for me. There's also an aspect of the movie that I, it seemed like it was kind of set up to be a twist, like a twist ending, but it's fairly obvious as what's happening and where it's going. Even though you, if you don't guess exactly what it is, you'll be in the right realm of what you're, what you're going for. I'm sitting here right in front of you, racking my brain, <laughs> trying to figure out what the hell you're talking about. I mean, I'm going to reference specific things like depression. Mm -hmm. So you're going to be in the right realm. Whenever you're seeing her life, her past, you see where she's going, you see what's happening, but they kind of make it into like a twist. Okay. And then it's kind of like Sita, which is short for Sita Lee, which is what they call her, Sandra's character. It's like she didn't even pick up on that. I just, I don't see how... Uh, but you're a kid and you have this filter and your parents are perfect and they're invincible, so I get it. Maybe she didn't see it, but I don't know. It just, it seemed like it was obvious, but I, maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. <laughs> well, some may be here saying, why are they talking about this movie specifically? That seems quite random. And I would say, <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. But still... <laughs> This is a movie that oddly, it evokes very nostalgic feelings for me <laughs> because this was a movie I went to the theaters to watch with my mom when I was like 10 years old and she loved it. And it was a very, it was a movie that we kind of bonded over or I just knew my mom really likes this movie. And this is the type of movie that I would classify as catnip for older people. <laughs> Because anytime a movie like this or Fried Green Tomatoes <laughs> or yes. Green Book or something comes on... <laughs> comes on the television and I talk to my mom next. She'll be like, have you seen this movie? We laughed and we loved it. I'm like, 
yes, that sounds about right for you, Mom. So (laughs) this movie, it's not great, but it has those memories inside me. So I find it pleasant and Mm -hmm. mostly because of the actors and it's not the best of these types of movies, but it's good enough. And if you like old people cursing (laughs) or doing weird stuff, weird plot holes that you don't really understand how stuff happened, (laughs) like why did they roofie Sandra Bullock and how did they get her on that airplane? They say they had a doctor's note, but really could would that fly not really i don't think so i told you they kidnapped her in the summer (laughs) it's ridiculous i know but seriously roofing yeah sandra bullock and getting her yeah don't they make a joke about it being date rape drug yeah and i was like okay (laughs) if you like a wildly wildly out of place maggie smith i was just about to say i was like what is she doing in this movie i weird accent yeah i love maggie smith she does not need to be playing southern characters. She does not know how to (laughs) nail that accent. Shirley Jones, perfect. Fionnula Flanagan, she does a great job. I think she's probably the best of the three Mm -hmm. or four, I guess, not including Ellen Burstyn. Yeah. Ellen doesn't have a ton to do. No. She's just over there whining that people are going to think she's a bad mother. and Yeah. She's worried about the interview that Sita gave. Yeah. So there's so much to unpack in this movie. It tries to do so many things. It tries to address racism in very subtle ways. Like whenever they go to the Gone with the Wind premiere and they dress down their cousins for being racist to their servant. Yeah. Uh, house servant yeah they're not too self-righteous about it but it's in that same vein as similar movies such as like green book where people feel good about themselves for tackling racism but don't really delve into it it's it's, very surface level yeah it's just one or two scenes because isn't it just like them throwing stuff at him that one right and they're just like how dare you and then that's it don't be racist that's rude (laughs) and then they walk off all pleased with themselves yeah (laughs) we did a good thing we stood up for our african-american servant yeah everything's gonna be fine now (laughs) there are just so many scenes audience will just eat up there's a scene of topless night driving and (laughs) almost topless i mean topless but not shown yeah but of course this is a (laughs) pg-13 movie there are bras coming off in the night at high speeds (laughs) it's pretty great nips in the wind ladies (laughs) sometimes you just want your your nips to be free so i get it free the nip hashtag free the nip you have James Garner here just preparing for his role in The Notebook. <laughs> <Just thinking. laughs> He's like, okay, in a few years, I'm really going to get this, but let me just lay the groundwork. I can be a strong older man who can be sad when I need to and be solemn. And, and stoic. Yeah. <laughs> Even though his character in the flashbacks aren't is a huge asshole, so you wonder why he had why he ended up even being with her for the long run. Yeah, I didn't see him as a huge asshole. He was a jerk in some moments, but overall, I don't think that he was an asshole. He, I know, was kind of like playing the vulture baby and circling that relationship, so whenever her boyfriend didn't come back from the war, he's just like, hey and jumping right on in there. But he, he loved her, and then she didn't love him in the way that he wanted but she was more because she's so broken and depressed and her life didn't turn out the way that she wanted it to be and then she didn't want to have all the 
those kids, I don't think. But what else was she going to do now? Because she's kind of trapped. I think she felt trapped by him. Am I mistaken? Was he not abusive in moments? I don't remember him being abusive. Unless at I just... At least verbally abusive, I feel. Yelling at her and... I don't remember him being verbally abusive. I don't remember those parts. Am I making this up? I don't know. I, I could have just forgotten those parts, but I don't remember him calling her anything awful or saying that she's stupid or worthless or... Listeners, I'm sorry. <laughs> I do not remember. I... I, th- I could have swore that he either physically or verbally abused her at, at least one point. Mm, I don't remember that. Okay. <laughs> Unless we both missed it and misremembered something. I don't remember that. And if if he did, then yeah, he's an asshole. But if I'm remembering right, he wasn't an asshole. And he was more patient with her. Okay. Because she was, she was cruel to him a lot. And then... Yeah, she was dealing with her stuff. Yeah, she had a lot on her plate to deal with. And then he kind of just spared it some and then just shut off and gave up on the relationship and everything but he he was just there I think for the kids and then just to be there he just kind of checked out pretty much for the rest of the relationship up until the present where we meet Sandra's character yeah and as you said she didn't really get a lot to do after her first 15 minutes or so yeah she's just being all ah and then it shows James being like that's her whatever (laughs) than just going on to play golf or something. I don't know. Yeah. I was just going to bring something up that made me, really grinds my gears. Okay. Of course, in the movie, it's a specific part where in the flashback, she's really getting into the really depressive episodes and she's really struggling and she doesn't know what to do. And of course, she goes to the priest for help. And that was pretty much the worst because she went to confessional and told him how she doesn't like her kids or her husband and she doesn't know what to do. And she's having all these thoughts about them that she doesn't like them. And then he just tells her basically to kind of just buck up and this is your cross to bear and you need to pray to God for forgiveness and still submit to the will of your husband and everything will be peachy keen and so that really irritates me and it's just the whole thing with religion being a whole screwing over women yeah a whole thing it's just it's misogynistic a lot of times and he said there's of course Catholics I don't think like divorce and they don't like birth control so she has all these kids postpartum depression is probably playing into it as well along with her not being able to do what she wants to do and the priest is basically just perpetuating this whole thing where it's like you you just need to suffer in this life to get to the next one which will be great if you just suffer do what god wants which he wants you to suffer you'll be fine in the next one and so just why why can't i just have a nice life now and everything's fine if you need to get divorced you need to get divorced and if you need to see a doctor and get medication and go to therapy that's totally fine and it's not it's nothing to be ashamed of he made her seem like she should be ashamed of all of this and that it's her fault that she was feeling this way and that basically god will punish her if she doesn't ask for forgiveness for this and to submit to the will of her husband and keep supporting him and keep doing what he wants. Yes, she did go to a doctor and get pills and the doctor was not a good doctor and gave her very bad pills. It did not work and made everything worse, but still, the the priest was the worst person to go to and I hate that that was like one of her only options and I hate what he told her. It made everything worse. That is pretty much the only tool they have in their arsenal. It's just, just pray the pain away. That's, yes. Just turn to God. That pretty much never works. <laughs> I hate that. But I mean, it's in the South and of course, that's what you're going to find. 
that's your your only resources and in that time period they're gonna make you feel really awful for even being depressed like you're deficient as a human being and as a mother he doesn't really want to deal with her no no why would he I'm sure he was tired of listening to her within the first 10 minutes of her talking. Oh, I've been zoning out for a while. Let me tell her to pray and suck it up. That's, That's what fine. I tell most women. <laughs> just, uh, you know, stop stop being an egg. <laughs> Can you just stop being a bitch? Jesus. <laughs> oh, did I say that loud? I don't know. Just, like, go have sex and get pregnant and have another baby. Won't that help? I don't know. Babies solve all problems. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> this movie, it's not great for many reasons. But it is very comforting in certain ways for me. It's not one I've returned to in the last 20 years, except for this most recent time. But it's enjoyable enough. Mm, Yeah. It's perfectly fine. Just tinged with nostalgia. (laughs) If this is a new watch for you, you will not get the same thing. You probably will not. Temper your expectations. If you want (laughs) not as good fried green tomatoes or still magnolias or any. Wait, wait, wait. I have to stop you for a second. You can't lump fried green tomatoes into this because fried green tomatoes, yes, it's a southern stuff and women, but it's got the whole thing that they cut out of the movie. It's more of like a lesbian thing. But it is southern flashback movie like yeah, to yeah, yeah. gentler times and they're weaving a story and I just wouldn't lump them together. It's that type of inspirational parent movie that parents love. Parents love. I love fried green tomatoes, but I wouldn't. I love parent movies a lot of times. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that fried green tomatoes is necessarily inspirational. It's not necessarily feel good either. It's very dark. But so is. It's a good cry movie. I guess. That's Steel Magnolias is a good cry movie too, but Steel Magnolias actually kind of makes you feel better. It's just this type of movie. I lump all dramas, comedies, everything. Yeah. Into this. Fried green tomatoes with the Kathy Bates parts can make you feel better because yeah. what she gets out of the story makes you feel better. That's mainly what I'm thinking of is Kathy Bates being Tawanda. Yeah. <laughs> it's that type of hoaxy Southern charm movie. Yeah. Weezer. <laughs> yeah. This is a Southern charm movie. <laughs> But not as good as most of them, but it's perfectly fine. If you like the cast members and you want to round out your filmographies, it's on HBO Max now. You can watch it. You mean not good like one out of a hundred? I'd say more like one out of a million. But Jessica, the question is, <laughs> have you come up with a rating system for this? I have. I was having trouble, but what I came up with was yayas. Okay. <laughs> I've come up with one as well. I've come up with topless joy rides. I kind of thought about that, but then I was like, no, nah, I don't want to. <laughs> but this is on brand for you. <laughs> this is a discussion we will have. <laughs> Just kidding. I would take two topless joy rides. Um, I would give this two and a half yayas. Mm-hmm. It might not even be two for me if it wasn't for the nostalgia. It might be one and a half, mm-hmm. but I'll just stick with two. It's yeah. it's fine. It's enjoyable enough. I think it's adequate. So 
So now we're going to do a segment that we won't always do every time, but we make a top five list of our choosing, and this time it is top five directorial debuts. Yeah, we figured since both Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood and Backbeat were both featured our directorial debuts, so we discussed some of our favorites. All right, starting with number five, I realized that we might have the same answers, but we'll, we'll see. My number five is The Witch by Robert Eggers. Very nice. <laughs> I really like that one. Yeah. What do you like about The Witch so much? Uh, I just, it really surprised me. I didn't expect it to be so good, and I really loved the, the suspense and the drama and just the twists. I didn't expect the twists or anything, and the way that it looks, it's really good. If I remember correctly, you were very hesitant to watch The Witch. Yes, I didn't want to be disturbed, but I wasn't disturbed. I just had chills up my spine, which is perfecto. <laughs> Before I launch into my list, I just want to add a disclaimer that I am laying my soul bare on this one. I'm not putting up a front. And just to level with you, there was a point where I was going to pretend that I was more high-minded than I actually am and include 12 angry men in my list because I thought it would make me look cool. But I was like, I cannot do that. I cannot put up a front. I love 12 angry men, but is it in my personal top five? No. So you will see that I have garbage taste in movies. <laughs> and with that, my number five is Anchorman, The Legend uh, of Ron oh, Burgundy. <laughs> okay. I love Anchorman. It has been a part of my life ever since I caught it in theaters. I quote it quite a bit. <laughs> it has so many great comedic talents in it. It's one of my favorite comedies. I like that movie, but I don't love it as much as you and most people. But it is nice to watch occasionally just to kind of zone out. It's quotable. Number four for me is Booksmart by Olivia Wilde. Very nice. <laughs> that movie was such a strong debut for her and I was very impressed and it makes me laugh and I love the strong female characters in it and the the perspective. And even though it is just high school stuff, it's really interesting and it works for me. So I loved it. I love Booksmart. My number four is up to childhood favorite, The Brave Little Toaster. Ooh, that's a good choice. I've had a soft spot for that ever since I was young. It is frightening, mm -hmm. but it is great. I love the animation style. It's such a nice story. It's I just love it so much. Surprisingly dark for a children's movie. Yeah. And I actually watched it for the first time with you, I think, five or six years ago. Mm -hmm. Because I'm pretty sure I'd never seen it my entire childhood. But I really enjoyed it. It is very good. And it is very dark. And yeah. I could see kids being afraid of it. Yeah. I think I had seen pieces of it because I remembered some pieces where they're still in the house. Mm -hmm. And the crazy air conditioner thing. So my number three is Eighth Grade by Bo Burnham. Yes. <laughs> Eighth Grade is also a solid premiere, and we saw it at Sundance, and it was both of our favorite movies of Sundance, so it's pretty great. Yes. It's um, inspiring, it's heartfelt, it's funny, it's everything. Echo that. <laughs> My number three, everyone hates this movie now, but I love it, is Garden State. <laughs> nice. It, for years, was my favorite movie. <laughs> I would watch it every year on New Year's Day to start out the year. I have not done that in many years and I realize it's not a perfect movie, but it was a perfect movie for my formative teenage years. That's what I needed at the time. And the soundtrack is stellar. Mm -hmm. Natalie Portman is amazing. She's the prototypical 
manic pixie dream girl. I don't care. Mm-hmm. I love her. She's amazing. I love the movie. Yeah, I watched it before I met you, but only, I think, once. So not as many times, but I like that movie and I don't think people should be ashamed of liking it or anything. I think you should let your Garden State flag fly yes. because it is a good movie and it's well written and directed. And yes, the manic pixie dream girl can be annoying, but whatever. It's not as bad as some movies. Yeah. I look forward to discussing it more in depth on a future episode because that was a Sundance title. Most, A lot of these are Sundance titles. <laughs> Woo! My number two okay. is Pleasantville by Gary Ross. I, <laughs> I saw it on my list of... Yeah, I figured you'd get that. Uh, I cannot say enough how lovely this movie is. It's so good. It's the perfect link, and it goes into so many themes that I love, and the performances by Toby and Reese and Jonah Allen are so good. So, yeah, I think it is a solid movie. Similar to Pleasantville, I checked to see if another childhood favorite, Stay Tuned, was a directorial (laughs) debut, but it was not, so that crushed those dreams. My number two, which is a movie you will never watch, is Ari Aster's Hereditary. I figured that might come in. (laughs) Yes. I love that movie. It is one of the best horror movies of all time, in my opinion. It is so unsettling. It is so great. It'll get in your head. There's so much to unpack. Midsummer's even better or equal to it. It, He's such an inventive director. I just just (laughs) cannot wait for more to come from him. I know you will never watch it. It will cause you nightmares. I got nightmares and lost sleep over it just from you telling me most of the movie. I was so passionate about it. I needed to tell you (laughs) about why this movie was so great. Jessica hates demons and possession. She will not mess with that. I'm not good with supernatural uh, horror movies, but I did love Midsommar. Yeah. So. I'm glad I convinced you to watch that (laughs) after being terrified by my description of Hereditary. Are you ready for number one? Number one. (laughs) Yes. My number one is a little movie called Drop Dead Gorgeous by Michael Patrick Jan. (laughs) Nice. This movie is so great, and it has pretty much an all-star cast, in my opinion, and the performances are amazing. It's kind of reminiscent of, like, a Christopher Guest movie, and I just, I love the story, and I love all the characters. Love it. One of my favorite Kirsten Dunst movies as well, and Kirstie Alley. I cannot wait to rewatch that one. My number one has already been mentioned, and that is... Eighth grade. I thought that might be the case. It's my number one. It, It's just perfection to me. Bo Burnham knocked it out of the park with that first feature of his. Mm-hmm. He wrote a teenage girl's life so perfectly that it's suspicious. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, how did you get this so... Like, how did you speak to a current generation so flawlessly? Yeah. And Elsie Fisher, she's amazing. That's one of the best youth performances I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Her dad, played by Josh something. <laughs> it's yeah. fine. He he was amazing. He's a great dad. And that movie's so quotable. I love it so much. <laughs> it's just amazing. Can I just really quickly add a few titles on? I have honorable mentions to okay. go over. Okay. Do you want to name some? Well, first I was going to say, if you've listened through all the way on our episodes, right after the theme music ends, you'll notice the Gucci. That's yeah. from eighth grade. Yeah. <laughs> My honorable mentions are Whip It by Drew Barrymore. Mm-hmm. What We Do in the Shadows, Jermaine Clement, because that was his, but not Taika's. And Molly's Game by Aaron Sorkin. 
<laughs> Me and You and Everyone We Know by Miranda July. Violet by Justine Bateman, which we just saw at South by Southwest. Yes. Very good. And Year of the Dog by Mike White. Say Anything by Cameron Crowe. I'm going to say a big hell yeah to that one. <laughs> and Of Course, Of Course. Legally Blonde by Robert Luketic. And I want to say that, of course, uh, Promising Young Woman and Gattaca would totally be included in my list, but I didn't want to... I wanted to get more movies in since we just talked about those extensively, so... Yes, Promising Young Woman would definitely be on mine if we hadn't just spoke about it. I wanted to get more movies in, and also my number one would be different if we included movies that we have seen at Sundance that haven't come out yet. We may talk about a little movie like that later later this year. That's a tease, but it was my favorite movie of 2020 that did not come out in 2020. And just a few movies I wanted to mention that I thought you might choose. I went from the 1920s current through Wikipedia seeing first-time directors. I'm surprised that you did not pick Christmas Vacation. Yeah, but yeah. Or Beauty and the Beast. I was seconds away from choosing Cabin in the Woods because I love that movie, but I, I Anchorman's more a part of my everyday life. Your so. identity? My identity. <laughs> my identity is Anchorman, which means I'm insufferable. So Also, I would have included Lady Bird, but since Greta had co-directed a movie before then. Nights and Weekends. Yes. And everyone is saying that Sound of Metal is Darius Martyr's first film, but there is a movie listed before Sound of Metal, or else Sound of Metal would be on my list. It's not a TV movie, is it? It's a documentary, I think. Okay, well, that still counts. Yeah. I don't know. It's on IMDb, so I didn't include it, but I freaking love Sound of Metal. It would be high on my list. Um, Just a few more that I wanted to mention. <laughs> Mostly movies movies from my childhood where a director came in, put that out, and just did not do much of anything else. <laughs> a Goofy movie. Yeah, the, re- the Rescuers. The Secret of Nim. Joe Dirt. <laughs> showing a lot about my personality. Beavis and Butthead do America. <laughs> and I would have put this in in a heartbeat, but we're back. A Dinosaur's Story. I think I saw that. Two of the four directors had done stuff before, so I was like, I don't think that counts. Mm. Same with Page Master, because the live action director, Joe Johnston, he had done stuff before, but the animation director had not, so I didn't include it. Those are some toit top five lists. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Home Dance Film Festival. Join us again next week when we will be discussing 2013's The Kings of Summer starring Nick Robinson and Nick Offerman and 2009's Adam starring Hugh Dancy and Rose Byrne plus a wild card that you will have to wait to hear about. For those who want to prepare at home, The Kings of Summer is available on DVD and Blu-ray and Adam is available to rent digitally and to purchase on DVD. If you have any thoughts or opinions about the movies we discussed today or movie suggestions, you can write us at at homedancepod at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter and tweet at us at homedancepod. If you feel so inclined, feel free to leave a rating or review. It helps us out. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at DylanGonzalez2. That's Dylan with one I. You can also find me publishing reviews almost daily on geekvibesnation.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at JessicaNarrates. You can also find me contributing to geekvibesnation.com. We are proud to be a part of the Geek Vibes Nation podcast. Podcasting Network. 
Original music for the show is provided by Andrew Carroll, who can be found at musicbyandrewcarroll.com. Original artwork for the show is provided by Ben Belcher, who can be found at theartofbenbelcher.com. I've been Jessica. And I've been Dylan. Put it there, if it weighs a ton. Yeah, yeah!